Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Lady Bunny has been a presence on the downtown New York dragon nightlife scene since the mid-80s. Arriving along with RuPaul and Larry T. from Atlanta, she found a home at the Pyramid Club, a legendary venue that redefined the conventional concept of the gay bar. It was punk, it was glam, it was inclusive to straight guys like myself who spent many a night entertained by the plays, bands, DJs, and go-go dancers that attracted a who's who of the now legendary scene that germinated in the East Village hotspot. A destination for both gays and straights, it paved the way for a new generation of performance art and launched careers that are still challenging the definition of what it means to be gay and drag and, most of all, talented in ways that don't quite fit into perceived norms. Over the years, Lady Bunny has proven to be a resourceful and talented member of that original troupe. She can barrage us with off-color jokes get us dancing to her eclectic mix of music to die for, provoke us with her political punditry, and entertain us in everything from movies to TV shows to her own Hateful Hags Network talk show that launches this week. Hi, Bunny. That's That sounds like you did quite a bit in your years. Well, it certainly does. I mean, wow. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. I mean, Well, thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. I'm glad that you felt that the pyramid was inclusive because oh, yeah. I, as a member of the left and as someone who is, <laughs> you know, sometimes targeted by the politically correct uh, community, when this pandemic happened, the only people that I was dealing with were were men who were giving me deliveries. I wasn't brave enough to go out and get them. And I, how I love chatting with them just as I love chatting with men who are cab drivers. And I think one issue that the left has is that they've actually turned on men. And I hate to see it. Like you said about the pyramid, we didn't care if you were straight. You were there to enjoy what we were putting down and keeping us in business, buying a drink or, you know, I'm sure you never paid a cover charge, David, because I go back when Paper Magazine was a fold out, you know. And so anyway, but yeah, it's funny because I even had this discussion with a trans activist friend, Peppermint, and, you know, I said, look, call men out on whenever they're toxic Call them out on it. You know, hold their feet to the fire. But let's, we can, we can support non-binary and trans and gay and, and, and whatnot without shitting on straight men all the time. Did you know that in this election, uh, straight, uh, I, I mean, white uh, men actually uh, went more for Biden? That's one of the statistics that's coming in. Since 2016, we've been demonizing the swing state, 
blue collar white voter. And this election has shown, hey, maybe we should say, I would like to persuade you rather than I hate you. Wow, you're so progressive, Bunny, even defending the straight white male. Listen, what chance does any movement have if you're going to bash roughly half of the population? (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah, I don't want to bash men. I may not always understand them, but I want to try just as I ask them to understand me. Well, this is, uh, you know, something that's come up since the election. So let's go there since we've already opened the door, uh, you know, with regard to who do we have to thank and what is the future going to look like as a result of that? So are we just going to revert back to politics as usual, Democrats in in office now instead of a Republican? Or are we going to go, you know, in a more progressive direction and challenge some of of these presuppositions about who people are really want? Is it a Bernie, which I know you supported originally, right? Yes. Oh, yes. In 2016 and 2020. You know, AOC going out also like trying to make the case for the progressives as the ones who brought us over the finish line here, that we should pay more attention to their needs as opposed to, you know, the white male, let's say. Well, uh, the white the white male has has those needs too. <laughs> um, I think one of the takeaways from the election, uh, I was kind of gagged to see a Fox News exit poll saying that seventy percent of all American voters said in exit polls that they wanted Medicare for all. Okay, so. Now, I'm sure Fox News, which no pundit on there supports Medicare for all, not even the token Democrat, Donna Brazile, does not support Medicare for all. That's fascinating to me because that's 70% of all voters, which is, I think it boils down to a small majority of GOP voters supporting it, but 80% plus Democrats support Medicare for all. We're in a pandemic. Let me ask you something. How do we have a choice between two presidents who do not support Medicare for all, which 70% of all voters support and over 80% of Democrats? Because the truth is, Joe Biden won, and I'm glad to be rid of Trump. But how can you have majority support? For something like that, that we don't have majority support on any issue. So Joe Biden could have easily, with a snap of his fingers, said, I support Medicare for all and united his own party. Kamala Harris is ranting on about how Joe Biden is the candidate of unity. Well, no, he could have united the progressives and the centrists in his own party with such a huge support for Medicare for all by supporting it. The fact is he is corrupted by insurance and pharmaceutical donors exactly the way that Obama was, which is why we have a lackluster ACA. You want to hear the joke, the Affordable Care Act? It's not right. affordable. <laughs> so if, if we are looking at things like, oh, 
oh, I'm so glad we got rid of that awful Trump and now we can return to decorum. No, decorum doesn't pay my rent. Decorum doesn't make my insurance costs go up or down. Everyone knows that this needs to happen. Even Donald Trump didn't come through with it, but in 2016 campaigned on cheaper drugs. He did nothing of the kind, but my insurance is one half of my rent. How can I afford to save? You know, how can I afford to save money paying half of my rent on insurance? The Affordable Care Act is not affordable. I'm not saying that Joe Biden is a crook in that this corruption is illegal. You know, campaign donations are legal. We now have something called OpenSecrets.org where you can look in any year in any candidate and see who gave who what. And I don't think it's disputed. The reason that we can't have Medicare for all is that Joe Biden is bought by the insurance and pharmaceutical. So I'm glad we got rid of Trump, but there's a meme that that sums up my feelings that was like a a young black guy smiling saying, we got rid of Trump. And then the next picture is with Joe Biden and he's frowning (laughs) because Mm, I mean, Joe Biden has said nothing will fundamentally change. And we're in the middle of several crises from the pandemic to Black Lives Matter, three states burning up, losing millions of acres. We're in the middle of a lot of crazy stuff. Income inequality has gone downhill under both Democratic and Republican presidents over 40 years. And the pundits are on the new, the, the pundits that were wrong about Hillary, the same pundits who we did not reject after they were so wrong, are on the news right now. That They were saying that Joe was going to win big. He did not. He eked out a victory. And Trump got more Republican support than he got in 2016. That's insane. Right. There's a lot to reflect on, given what happened with this election as we look back. And yeah, the media has a big part. They've been complicit in this whole thing, this Trump era, as much as anybody else, except they were just playing the other side of the same coin. There was one interesting uh, thing that happened in 2016 where Ed Schultz, who was fired after he was a progressive uh, anchor on MSNBC, they got rid of him because Bernie was speaking and Ed was about to cover it. MSNBC cut to an empty podium where Trump was about to speak. This shows you what MSNBC is really all about. They're about getting ratings by howling over Trump. Oh, he did this. Oh, he did that. Babe, when are you going to stop being shocked over it? Because when you come down the escalator saying Mexicans are drug dealers and rapists, well, first of all, I use drugs and I'm kind of horny. So I like Latino guys. That doesn't scare me off. I'm glad Trump is out. (laughs) But Biden is not anyone who I trust. You know, most people right now are feeling like, okay, let's give this guy a few minutes and hopefully he'll get into office. One of the areas that I think maybe you could agree has made some progress, or maybe you don't, LGBTQ having its place in the conversation now. The words that have been uttered by by Biden and by Kamala Harris. I'm not interested in uttering words or tokenism or symbols. You can say, ooh, 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 Kamala Harris, first, you know, VP of color. Well, um, 
Barack Obama was the first president of color. Ask people of color if their lots in life improved under his eight years. They didn't. This is tokenism. I mean, I was just watching Crystal Ball and Sagar's show on Rising, the, uh, the Rising on thehill.com, and they were saying that the Democrats have been going so heavy with this political correctness and tokenism. So, I mean, I, as a friend of many, many trans people inspired by a trans woman of color in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I grew up, to start performing, who I'm still in contact with, it doesn't help them one bit to utter their name. That's tokenism. I even say when the Black Lives... Okay, here's an example. So there is this movement that says to honor the trans women of color who have died, say their names. And they've been doing this for several years to show respect. And if that is someone that you knew or, you know, and and you want to grieve for just because you're a nice person, that's great. But how many years are you going to say their names? And what is that going to achieve? You are not talking about the situations under which these trans women of color or any other color are dying under. And you are not saying who is killing them. That is the answer to a problem not throwing a word out there. But you do believe in the power of words. I, that's what you do. You go Not if it's just words. No, not if it's just words. I say, you know, okay, if y'all need to grieve, then you grieve over the trans women of color. And when you want to start moving and talk about why they're getting killed and who is killing them, Please come and get me. I will be in that movement, just as I've been very vocal about my support for Black Lives Matter. But um, I can't tell people of color what should offend them or what does or does not offend them. But when you want to go from George Floyd and a knee on his neck to a nationwide discussion of a model on a syrup bottle... I'm sorry. Like I say, as a white person, I can't say what Aunt Jemima made black people feel. But to me, I would love to be part of the stop the police, whether it's defunding them or teaching them or or enforcing the body camera rules or or just prosecuting them when they kill people of color. But 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 catch me later on the syrup bottle changing movement. That is (laughs) that is never going to be something that I'm involved in. The cultural stuff is what bothers you more than the political stuff, it sounds like. No, it's the opposite. Or or is it uh, the opposite? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, But the political stuff bothers you in the sense that it's real, police out of control, we need to do something. But the cultural in the sense of the Aunt Jemima, which I believe is what you're referring to, people getting their knickers in a twist. Well, they were very upset. And like I say, I will never have the right to tell people of color what to get upset about that involves their history. But the amount of work that they put into researching the model who was Aunt Jemima, I mean, my Lord, if they had researched Joe Biden's 94 crime bill, which locked up tens of thousands of mainly black men, if they had researched Kamala Harris's terrible record of locking people up in California when she was attorney general 
Do you remember that first debate when Tulsi Gabbard just mentioned uh, several of, of the things that she'd done as attorney general and the entire crowd gasped, keeping prisoners in longer to work $1 a day? to fight California forest fires, laughing about using marijuana herself, but locking up a lot of people of color who who use marijuana. This was the ultimate joke to me. It's like, so during Black Lives Matter, all of my woke friends were saying, uh, and and they think they're woke. I say they're a sloke um, because they were saying, oh, well, you know, Biden was nobody's first choice, but he needs to pick a black woman as his VP and that will excite people and bring some kind of racial justice. Well, not if you've been a harsh cop like Kamala has in California. That That was unbelievably tone deaf. Yeah. Well, we could go on here talking to politics and (laughs) and I'm sure, but I'd love to segue a little bit off that into some other stuff, which is very interesting to me. As I mentioned, I was at the pyramid. I really appreciated all the talent and the creativity there, which is what I wanted from the pyramid and the free drinks, of course, let's not forget that. And but at the time as well, it, it was like such a, a different idea of what drag is. And that's something I want to get to here, sort of like this whole idea of what is drag before this pyramid era came on, where it was about traditional lip syncing, trying to look like Marilyn Monroe and trying to pull off you know, these looks in a, in a certain perfect way was not really the vibe at the pyramid. No, the pyramid was which billed itself as a drag queen owned and operated venue. It wasn't actually drag queen owned, but it was managed by drag queens. I mean, it was also <laughs> a heroin den, and it may have been a cocaine den, but I didn't really know what cocaine was when I arrived at the tender age of 22 or something like that. So, the thing that struck me about the pyramid. Well, first of all, they hired me, so I'd never gotten paid, you know, in any of RuPaul's free reviews or in Atlanta or any of the Now Explosion, which you mentioned, Larry T, mm-hmm. uh, Lahoma Benzant, and all that crew. So, you know, we came up to do a show, and I stayed because I just had never seen drag like it. Now, I love traditional drag, and many of my best friends are like old school traditional lip sync pageant drag but i had just seen enough of the of the drag queens and butterfly sequin 80s tops lip syncing to heartfelt ballads melissa manchester or or i mean you know that i had just seen enough of the tina turner and you know share and whatnot so coming to the pyramid where people were impersonating Joni mitchell john kelly or uh janice joplin just creating their own characters that's what's been the hallmark of new york drag a lot of major cities have an impersonation venue where there is, you know, like the whole show is celebrity impersonation. Those have rarely ever taken off in New York. And it's because artists like Joey Arias, Kevin Aviance, Lipsinka, you know, and so many more 
create their own character that's not a celebrity, you know, that they have their own, you know, whatever they think they are. What is Joey Arias? He is a Billie Holiday singing, Betty Page drag wearing with a Fred Flintstone face. No, she's kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. Uh, You know, I mean, but, but he's otherworldly. He's never going to be the type that's going to step out in a, you know, and try to be like a glitzy pageant winner, you know, in the same way that Lipsinka is a rarefied choosing old recordings and, and elevating lip syncing to an art form with theatrical presentations with intricate, trust me, very intricate <laughs> lighting and costuming and, you know, precision lip syncing. I mean, what kept me at the pyramid is the free drinks like you, but also to get to work there and to be part of that and seeing that kind of drag, which I thought was more interesting than what I had loved, but had grown up with and gotten a little bit tired of. It was interesting to see people like Tanya Ransom, you know, have a drag poetry night. She also had a, she sang original songs with a band or she would also had some insane thing called the June Taylor dancers, Mm -hmm. which would just come on to like 1950s music. She was, she was the reigning diva when I arrived at the pyramid. Of course, there was Ethel Eichelberger who was dancing on the bar with us and she put on many, you know, plays that she had written some musicals and um, was dancing on the bar for 50 bucks right beside me and then getting reviewed in the New York Times, you know, for her plays. So it just showed me that drag doesn't have to be limited to lip sync. It doesn't have to be limited to really anything. And that's why I wanted to do Wigstock because I wanted to showcase. I thought that that the kind of drag that I saw at the pyramid would interest more people than could fit inside that 200 capacity club. Well, Wigstock, just to uh, enlighten some of our listeners who may not be familiar with it, was a, a outdoor, like a Woodstock for the Wigstock generation, right? Yes. The idea you just brought out all these uh, fantastic performers to a larger, it started in Tompkins Square Park. It was outdoors. It was free. Yes, and it grew and grew and grew and and pretty much, you know, I guess became my claim to fame. I mean, it grew until I could not believe it when when Michael Schmidt, the uh, designer who does stuff for Cher and Tina Turner, had told me that Debbie Harry, an idol of mine, was coming to perform, nor could I really believe it when Louis Vega and La India, who is now a big salsa star, but at that point was Louis Vega's either girlfriend or wife, and the song that we all dropped our coats and ran to the dance for was I Can't Get No Sleep, a Masters at Work production. When I was backstage, and I, I knew that they had been confirmed, you know, but by, by someone else that had ties to the music industry, but Honey, that's that that was some New York royalty, you know, coming up to little Miss Chattanooga, Tennessee's event, you know, in Tompkins Square Park. Those were magic moments for me because, you know, as we both know, New York was so hot at that time when, yeah. when the producers that were making dance music fill dance floors all over the world were our in-house DJs at our Wednesday night <laughs> sound factory bar, you know, functions. 
So you, so you, you got your wish came true. You, you, you did Wigstock. It became a movie. It's still shown quite a bit. You've been in other movies, Wigs, and now it, it did Rupert. actually become a a movie called Wig that may still be playing on HBO. It's been on there for about a year. Um, uh, okay, so. people could check that out. But then your roommate earlier, aforementioned RuPaul. Look at him now, right? He's a star. Has won many emmys he's doing commercials now i just saw him at a tv commercial for something oh, for um old navy yes for old navy I, I i'm a little heavier than rue and i was offered a commercial for old gravy <laughs> and another thing that rue is doing is fracking <laughs> on his wyoming ranch which was a bit of a scandal recently so i guess there's some awful sides of fame too <laughs> do you like what's happened to drag becoming such a, a big popular thing. I mean, there's TV shows now you're starting one and, and there are others as well. I, I'm not starting one with the hateful hags network is just a one-off comedy thing that just kind of oh. goofs on the RuPaul drag race and, you know, his, oh. uh, his show, AJ and the queen and whatnot. Bianca Del Rio is the winner of season six and she is known for her caustic <laughs> insults humor is debuting on november 12th on vimeo it's just a one-off one-hour thing but hey maybe we'll do it if there's no news to it it's really just just dishing the dirt on queens because we felt people might have had enough of politics of politics okay i mean the, the question what do i think of drag today well as i've said i was fond of interesting drag that i found at the pyramid now there seems to be a formula for drag, and it is very, um, dare we say, elitist. Like uh, lace front wigs cost thousands of dollars, and uh, you're considered a nobody unless you wear a lace front wig and have have spent hours on precision makeup with contouring and white stripes down your nose. Well, it's the perfection of that look, right? It's, you know, whereas thinking back to the pyramid, you know, people could be sloppy, their makeup could be, you know, going, but that was part of the fun. Somebody could be more perfect. It just was an right. individual thing. But now it's it's a thing that you have to have if you're on that show. And it's something which if you have incredible looks and you're just like turning it out every day, then you'll have tons of fans on Instagram. And let's face it, Instagram followers in our empty, soulless world are how people are selected for gigs. You know, I'm the beneficiary of it sometimes, but that is just the way that it is now. So, however, and, and I love to see beautifully, imaginatively dressed up queens. I mean, when they're all about like, oh, there's certain rules for padding your hips to look like a woman. There are rules for must have this lace front that costs thousands of dollars. You know, you must have this, you know, if RuPaul puts a, a rose or an ornament in the side of his hair, <laughs> you know, the way Donna Summer did, then everyone's got to do it. But all that's great. You look great. You're much thinner and you're much younger and prettier than me and you're expertly made up. But what do you do when you get on the stage? Right. That's what I'm concerned with. I'd rather see a busted booger with drugstore makeup on <laughs> come out and rip the shit out of a dance number or go totally 
offbeat and just do something crazy and unexpected. New York City lost a drag great named Sugar Pie Coco, who would come out with and perform. It was kind of a lip sync, but half of the time she would just look at the audience resentfully to Rihanna's umbrella, Ella, Ella, song, and she had a bag with like. 10 different umbrellas and so it, it, you know she would keep pulling them out i mean it to me it was like marcel marceau kind of level stuff but every umbrella was broken and you know it was just it was just a, a fun idea and you know often she would look at the audience as if she really hated them and hated that she had to be up there with broken umbrellas but you know it turned the party i remember speaking of you know what is drag uh, that years ago i was uh, walking in the east village and i someone called my name as i was walking i looked closer and it was rupaul and his sister i believe you know sitting on the stoop smoking a joint and I said, oh, I didn't recognize you because he was just wearing khaki pants and white shirt or something, you know, very normal. So I said, well, I didn't, you know, couldn't, almost didn't recognize you out of drag. He says, well, I am in drag. I'm wearing my Gap drag. So <laughs> the question being, is, there, is, is, is everyone in drag? That was kind of his point, is that drag is not just something that he does, but everybody does drag, but it may not you know, look as good. I think his quote is, um, we're born naked and the rest is drag. So uh, yeah, well, we choose things that we put on, whether it's a uniform for school or, well, they don't choose school uniforms, but whatever, whatever profession you pursue, you either wear a, a police outfit or you wear what a female hooker would wear, which is sexy we do choose through our grooming and clothing selections. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it drag because most people aren't, you know, they're not drag is, is wearing the clothing of the opposite sex. And I don't think that that's what's most doing, but you know, Hey, if a drag queen can't exaggerate, (laughs) (laughs) I understand you don't like to appear in public out of drag. Right. Whereas RuPaul right. now is, has been able to split those two personalities, at, at least. So you can, he can be RuPaul, like as RuPaul, not in drag. And then he could be RuPaul in drag as, at the same time. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that almost everyone would rather see him in drag. But when you attain <laughs> a level of stardom like that, you can call the shots. I personally find it puzzling that you would go on a late night talk show, you know, as RuPaul the man, but hey, she gets away with it. I've never been interested in appearing out of drag. I I feel like that would be appearing without my armor, with the look not finished. Since Nan Golden had so such famous and successful photographs of, you know, photographing pyramid artists in the dressing room getting ready with like makeup on and their wigs off and their shirts off. I'm more of a woman than that. I mean, if if a, if a photographer ran in, you know, to to a dressing room, and and I had my shirt off, I would shriek and put my hands over my what I call boobs. 
just like a woman would. So you would never ever see me in a tank top because I don't oh, yeah, listen. Well, I've the, seen you. Huh? <laughs> I've seen you. In the past. Not in a tank top, I, that's not like a tank, like a tank top. T-shirt. People are, are very involved in defining their gender identity, you know, down to like 50, 60 different names for it. And I, I don't really try to press that people on what my gender identity is. I just be it. And I don't really feel the need to talk about it or to categorize it or to speak. I'm not going to walk on eggshells in my own community, which loves to police language. I would not present the male side of myself. Because in the same way that Chara wouldn't, <laughs> I mean, not that she's not. I'm not outing her as a trans woman. Uh, I mean, she, she, that, that's her. That's her. That's her stick. Yeah. You know, the the ponytail and the glittery outfit and the legs and the heels and the accent. I I would not consider myself an entertainer without my stick. People love those Nelson Sullivan videos, and he was my roommate, and we had an agreement. Film me anything I do on stage because that's why I'm in this costume. To me, it's kind of a vanity thing that you assume that people are going to be interested in you without your bag of tricks on. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, we, we go through a lot to look the way that we look. So I don't know why people are fascinated with the raw ingredients. Well, I do know, and that is because of Drag Race, and they show the queens in and out of drag. The number one Google search for Lady Bunny is Lady Bunny out of drag. I mean, people, because they see it, they see the queens in and out of drag on Drag Race, they cannot understand why there aren't more photos of me floating around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Could I ask you also about the acceptance of drag in, in the gay community? That has evolved as well, right? I, as I believe in the early days, our early days at least, there were the clones from the West Village. And, and you remember there were these stencils, you would see clones get out, you know, the gay man with, with the typical like bomber jacket, mustache, jeans. Who, you know, would be, who would be putting the clones out signs up? You don't remember? I don't remember those. No? Oh, who who wanted them out? I think Keith Haring was actually doing one of those. Uh, huh. Well, I mean, listen, there's different types of gays. Uh, <laughs> but, but the question know. being about the respect for the drag, was it something that was, you know, the respectable gays look down on it? Or is it, has that changed or it's always the same? It's an interesting thing because gay men put drag queens on a pedestal. And this is true. Before Drag Race, I mean, they were idolized for winning pageants or for just being good performers, even if they didn't enter pageants. But the stigma with drag queens, I'm, I'm not sure about that clones thing, is that most gay men like masculine gay men for sex. So when they see a drag queen, they're not really sexually attracted to it. And some of the more conservative ones did not really understand what it was all about. And it kind of gave them the creeps. But you also have to realize that when you're out at a club and you're looking for uh, prospective sex hookups and you want masculine men, or at least not totally over the top, drag queens, 
you may like the drag queens or you may not. And sometimes the clones did not like the drag queens. The clones were replaced by the East Village clones, who I'm sure you will remember, who liked the Smiths and the Communards. Tell me why! (laughs) I'm sure you remember that Uh, unforgettable sound. They wore overalls with the cut off under the knee with a Doc Martin combat boots and they shaved their heads and stuff like that. And then after that, it was the Chelsea clones who were on steroids. And often the, the clone thing, kind of the drugs change with the, the clones. And, and now the predominant gay groups are the older bears who are heavier and who don't primp and pluck in an anal sort of way. And then the younger twinks who kind of take they they like to be shallow they like broadway and martinis in hell's kitchen and it's almost like a himbo male bimbo kind of thing where it's like whatever like mean girls is their bible (laughs) and the spice girls Do you watch the uh, RuPaul show? I guess you do. You've been on it and and you're sort of like a little, you know, have a satellite connection to that show these days. I don't. I I don't watch it. I'm too old to understand reality TV's appeal. That's not really a criticism of Drag Race in particular, but I don't understand the appeal of reality TV. I like a script. (laughs) they I'm are an scripted though, aren't they? I mean they're you know, they're not really reality like anyway. Well, honey, if they're scripted, they might want to get a better writer. Oh yeah, that's fine. I'm done with that. Ain't just drag race. No, listen, I, I'll tell you one thing interesting that happened to me. Um I, I'm like a non I mean, my TV hasn't been hooked up for a year and a half. But I did catch I got a Netflix trial. <laughs> And I watched Pose. I'd only seen one episode of Pose, which, of course, is about the ballroom culture and, you know, in an attempt to cast, I mean, they actually cast trans people in trans roles and stuff. And, you know, of course, I was not part of the ball scene in, in Harlem culture, but was friends with Willie Ninja and Carmen Extravaganza and all those people, you know, that we worked together in the clubs. I do like Billy Porter, the star of it. And I saw one episode and cried my eyes out because he sang Home, which is Stephanie Mills' song from The Wiz. And it's an incredibly beautiful song, also a lip sync classic. Even though I was never part of that scene, I think that people who worship Paris is burning like I do and like many gay, black, Puerto Rican, you know, whatever of my era do is that we were protective of that very unique scene and we didn't want to see Ryan Murphy who had produced Glee and made unfortunate decisions like having a actual woman play Frankenfurter singing Sweet Transvestite. I mean, please, that's the tiredest thing on earth. But, you know, Ryan did not shy away. He didn't shy away from the drug use, the prostitution, the stealing of designer things to uh, uh, compete in, in balls, or the AIDS. And so here I was watching pose in the second pandemic that I'm trying to survive. And I was 
fucking bawling my eyes out because seeing scenes of them going to visit friends with AIDS in the hospital who they knew had no chance of surviving. It took me back to those same scenes. It took me back to the shame that because Tom Rubinett's AIDS progressed to such a point, he was a video director who I worked with and who was a paper person yeah. for sure. I got freaked out because I was afraid that I might have AIDS. So I did not visit Tom as much as I should have. And I can never rewind that and visit him more. So I was literally bawling. But what I noticed about Pose when the tears subsided is that I'd lost faith in gay storytelling until I saw Pose because 15, 20 years ago, we were seeing Armistead Mopan, Tales of the City, which, you know, I never really got into, but I could under, I could see that it was quality. However, now we're seeing, you know, on Drag Race, they literally play like a cheesy chord to let you know that here comes a sob story from one of the contestants. So Pose was was a refreshing move away from the cheap sentiment. And it was sentiment that actually got to me, like in a big way, because, honey, I'm going to tell you something. Maybe it took the pandemic to make me reflect on this, but getting in touch with loss is mighty powerful and the the older you get the more you lose i mean hopefully you 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 gain some wisdom you know sometimes i pull back from social media and i'm like you know what okay this is the anniversary of your pet's death okay i can't go there with you i know that pets are gay people's kids but not the pet died not not that i ever met you and played with that pet many many times but i can't hit like on the anniversary of your best <laughs> if it just died maybe. it's tough the way people sharing now so many personal experiences uh you know very very personal especially of loss well they've got on time on their media. they've got time on their hands the experience i had with watching pose was feel that loss cry over it recognize even if it's loss of stuff like artists can't afford to move to new york city anymore that's a huge loss it's a huge loss that gay bars no longer play good music they play top 40 that's a tremendous loss to know that straight djs would come to see what records DJs from the disco era to Frankie Knuckles to whoever were breaking so that they would include those records in their set because we knew the, the tunes. And honey, we didn't need pop princesses with images, Madonna, Kylie Minogue, or whatever. If they were a big, heavy black gal that could sing, she may not even have the artist development to put her on the cover of her own record, but we were out in that club singing and dancing and carrying on to every word of that song that we knew. I don't think young people understand that we used to arrive at a club, throw off our coats, go to the dance floor, our friends got us drinks, <laughs> and we stayed on the dance floor. I yeah. mean, soaking wet. This was not... Oh, stop and give a trout pout selfie every five minutes. You know, it's funny. I DJ at the Monster on Sunday nights for like an early disco tea dance. There was a 60-year-old-ish guy there 
very nice looking. You know, obviously he was working a look with a kilt and whatever. And I, I said, you know, may I have to take your photo? He said, sure. He didn't stop dancing. And I thought that was so interesting. It was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't mind if you take my picture, but I'm dancing. <laughs> and it was my music, so I could barely get offended. But I was like, you know, now anyone under 30 would be ready with their model pose. <laughs> totally. Well, I know you're always ready with the pose. David, oh, oh, I thought you were about to proposition me. Well, we're running out of time, I'm afraid to say so. (laughs) I am too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to pick this up at another time. I can't wait. Pick it up. Are you calling me an it? (laughs) I can't wait to see you again and run into you somewhere. (laughs) Oh, no. Don't go there, please. Please, Well, you can still visit my only grand's account. Okay. I'm not on OnlyFans, but I'm on OnlyGrants. Okay. I'm teasing. I know, I know. You're playing the age card on me. But <laughs> I think that's a card that we can play together. <laughs> yeah, we can play together. Thank you so much for being on my show, Lady Bunny. My pleasure, uh, astute David. Political observer. Uh, who I have the pleasure of following and and hearing what you're saying, and I totally respect your point of view, even though I may not agree with all of it. What? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, just everything else that you've done for me, for the city of New York, for just everyone in general. Well, I'm doing it because I love it, and it's great to catch up. Talk to you later. Bye. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.